Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, June 10th. Today, Dylan Byer stops by to spill the tea on all the drama at the Washington Post, the tweets, the suspensions, the politics, who's on whose side, and whether all the infighting laid bare on social media for all to see is damaging the Washington Post's reputation. And later on in the show, Tina Wynn stops by to give us a rundown on what happened during last night's debut installment of the January 6th hearings in the House. Did the investigators deliver the drama that they promised, or was insurrection content not exactly must-see TV in primetime? We hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs & Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Just a quick note, we taped today's podcast with Dylan Byers before news broke on Thursday night that the Washington Post has fired reporter Felicia Sanmez after she spent much of the week publicly attacking the Post, her employer, on Twitter. But you'll be happy to know that my conversation with Dylan is still very timely. In fact, it's the inside story of why this whole thing went down the way it did. Enjoy. Happy Friday, everybody. I am joined today by our media expert, Dylan Byers, who I'm not going to ask for a cocktail recipe today because there's a lot (laughs) to discuss uh, about the Washington Post intrigue. The Washington Post is currently embroiled in uh, a drama surrounding one employee and a decision to suspend another employee. And a lot of people dismiss this as some sort of like insidery media story, but I'm hearing from a lot of random friends who are just like, what is going on at the Washington Post? This is not the paper of Ben Bradley and Bob Woodward, et cetera, et cetera. What's for the people who read Puck but have been following this as closely, what is happening at the Washington Post this week? Yeah, and you and the reason you should care is actually because this issue, which is journalists who feel emboldened to speak out on Twitter, to challenge their own organizations on Twitter in a public forum, maybe even criticize their colleagues. This is a trend that has been going on about as long as the existence of social media and the existence of Twitter as sort of the the primary forum 
for journalists outside of, of their actual published work. And it is an issue that I think if you ask any news media executive or newsroom leader, editor-in-chief, what keeps you up at night, this is one of those things. At news organizations where you have failed to establish a culture where everyone is sort of respectful and plays by the rules Mm -hmm. and takes their problems uh, directly to their colleagues or their superiors or to HR, we've seen this happen at the New York Times. We've seen it happen myriad times at the Washington Post. This happens, and it is something that has the potential to at least temporarily overshadow the reputation of a journalistic organization. This specific case, basically it boils down to this. You have Dave Weigel, who's, who's been a journalist for about 20 years, who has had a string of tasteless or ill-advised tweets or retweets including one last week that we don't even have to go into it, made some very tasteless remark about women in general. Which he just retweeted, to be clear. This was not his joke. No, he retweeted it. But people who feel like his punishment was extremely punitive or not punitive enough, no, no one defends the tweet. The tweet was tasteless. It was bad. It was a bad retweet. He shouldn't have done it. But he was suspended for a month. This led a lot of, to a lot of frustration among people. They felt like that was overly punitive for retweeting a bad joke, uh, even if it was highly offensive. The real reason he was suspended for a month without pay was because he actually ha- has a string of these offenses, things that he has been informally advised to take down or to not do, and then things that have actually gone directly into the HR file. And so my understanding is, is based off of previous warnings that Weigel may have even been somewhat relieved that the punishment wasn't even more severe, by which I mean just outright termination. To clarify, we are not saying he's tweeted like a bunch of like creepy, aggressive, nothing like malevolent, nothing super malicious. He's just like, you know, has a little bit too quick of a trigger finger on Twitter. I just want to clarify yes, that for people that, who don't That's know. right. No, that's absolutely right. But nevertheless, I think the Washington Post felt grounded in its decision based not just off of this instance, but off of the numerous instances. Anyway, that in and of itself would be a very clean cut story. Washington Post cracks down on this. That is not actually the story. The story right now is that Felicia Sanmez, another Post reporter, went and basically blasted him on Twitter for doing this and called the management's attention to it and then proceeded and is continuing uh, over the course of the last week to issue tweets that basically criticize the Washington Post and its handling of issues related to offensive tweets, to misogyny, to all manner of issues that she's frustrated with. And she has done this with a volume and, and intensity by which I mean like over a hundred tweets related to this and the fallout from it that has irked many of her fellow employees and her colleagues and has even led some of them to take to Twitter to either urge her to stop or to criticize her for what she's doing, which she in turn has put back out into the ether on Twitter as something that the Post also needs to take action on. And so you are basically drowning in this morass of more and more post employees taking to Twitter to fight out this issue 
you know, for some people, this issue of Felicia Sanmez as someone who is heroically taking her organization to task for being ineffective at stopping bad behavior. And then on the other hand, a lot of people who feel that she, in her eagerness to criticize her colleagues and air the dirty laundry, is doing more damage to the paper than anything else. Whatever side you fall on in this debate, whoever you support or don't support, it, it, it is like this high school drama of pettiness with no heroes playing out on Twitter at the, the paper that is the paper of Ben Bradley and Woodward and Bernstein and uh, 10 Pulitzer Prizes, I believe, over the course of the last decade. And it is just not a good look and it is really bad. And there's a feeling that in addition to just damaging the morale of the thousand plus people who go to work every day and, and just put their head down and do the work and try and, you know, report on the state of the nation and the state of the world and win those Pulitzers, that is all being overshadowed by this drama that should be handled internally. Felicia has been public about being a victim of assault and has been very outspoken about that, both internally, as you mentioned, and externally, and has also claimed that editors have retaliated against her or tried to take her off stories involving assault. And she she was even suing one of her editors at The Post while continuing to work at The Post, accusing him of discriminating against her in the workplace. The current standing of her lawsuit, which was that she was discriminated against because as a survivor of sexual assault, she was banned from covering stories about sexual assault. The Post argued that she was not banned because she was a survivor of sexual assault. She was banned because she had become her advocacy around the issue violated the post guidelines on impartiality. And the judge sided with the post on this issue. She said that she would appeal her case. What I learned this week is that her lawyer has actually withdrawn from the case and she is getting ready to announce new representation. One other quick note for listeners too. Felicia came to perhaps worldwide attention in January 2020 when Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash here in Los Angeles. And Felicia very quickly went on Twitter and amidst all the praise being heaped on Kobe Bryant, literally minutes after his death, she tweeted that, uh, hey, remember he was accused of rape way back in the day. That's important to remember right after Kobe died. She was actually suspended by Marty Barron and others at the Post at the time who said she violated the social media policies. And then a bunch of other reporters signed a letter demanding that she get reinstated. I just think it's really important to point out that Felicia has been at at the center of a lot of internal and external controversies at the Post for a few years now. And then, you know, this happens. And as you mentioned, she is on a Guinness World Record setting Twitter mission, you know, surpassing perhaps even Steve Schmidt's multi-day Twitter rant from uh, a few months ago. (laughs) Felicia has her own history with the post, but the larger question in a way to maybe simplify all of this, whatever people's own personal stakes are or histories or ambitions is that the fundamental question for the leadership of the post is, 
should all of your dirty laundry be aired out on Twitter? And there are, in fact, guidelines at The Washington Post, which are in desperate need of being updated, that say the answer is no. And we should be a collegial company where people, if they have grievances or problems with the organization or with their colleagues, either take that up directly with their colleagues or the leadership of the organization, or they go to the human resources department. And so the question, as, as much as all of these specifics are incredibly significant to this specific case, I think the reason that so many people in the media industry generally care about this is because over the course of the last decade, there has been an increasingly high level of frustration with newsroom leaders and, and the old guard at the fact that the reputation of their brands, their their organizations, are being dragged down by Twitter fights among employees where no one seems to win. It might not be what's at stake for Felicia Sanmez. What's at stake for her might be a question of equality in the workplace and and fair treatment and, and overcoming sexual misconduct in, in media and in American business. But I can tell you what's at stake for the editor and the publisher and CEO, Fred Ryan, and even, I imagine, to the owner, Jeff Bezos, yeah. is this question of how do we rein in our staff from basically airing our dirty laundry and turning us into the story, which is always what happens in these situations. There's also, like, I think when people look at this who aren't in journalism, they genuinely are like, why are employees allowed to do this? And I am curious what other people within the Washington Post are saying about this, because I cannot imagine they're super hyped that this is happening. Look, Felicia Sanmez has a lot of supporters in the newsroom, people who like what she's doing and appreciate her and admire her for standing up for the cause that she's fighting for. But I have to tell you that the overwhelming majority of people I spoke to for this story are really frustrated that she is out there aggressively tweeting about the organization and its shortcomings and naming colleagues and editors by name. And they feel not only does it hurt the morale of the newsroom, but they feel like it overshadows the hard work that they are doing every day, the work that they do every day, which requires shoe leather reporting and all of that hard work that gets put up every day in the Washington Post and tries to uphold the Washington Post's commitment to responsible journalism, they feel like all of that's getting overshadowed. I think what they are wrestling with is a cultural problem because it's not just that there's one reporter who's going off on Twitter. There's obviously a lot of reporters at the Washington Post who feel comfortable going off and and fighting or bickering with one another on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think the Post guidelines for all their faults make it pretty clear that you should not be doing what Felicia Sanmez is doing, what Dave Weigel did, what all of the people who went on and then criticized Felicia for her tweets did. You don't need to do this publicly. And by the way, as, as Josh Barrow points out, there are organizations where this does not happen. This doesn't really happen at an Axios, right? Or a business insider, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. So far, it hasn't happened at Puck, but we're small. (laughs) And, and, you know, kudos to someone running an organization the size of the New York Times or the Washington Post who can figure out how to prevent that from happening. I would just like to punctuate this conversation with a poll from YouGov that came out in April 
asking people in the U.S. to rate news organizations according to trustworthiness. Number one out of every news channel, from CNN to the New York Times, NBC News, the Weather Channel. Uh, Weather (laughs) Channel does not cover politics. That's probably one reason why. But number two, this is among Americans, is the BBC. The BBC is the most trusted news organization in the United States. And my theory of the case on that is the BBC has rigorously enforced guidelines around social media for at least the last 15 years. If you get in a fight with a colleague on Twitter, if you display some kind of open political belief or bias on Twitter, if you spend all of your day on Twitter, your bosses at the BBC will not only notice, they will reprimand you or they will fire you because they understand that their brand overseas around the world and here in the US is trust. And the journalism industry in the United States has not reckoned with or grappled with the fact that we as journalists have spent the last 15 years broadcasting our fights, our insecurities, our partisan beliefs to the American public as if they can't see them because it's just our feed. That is bananas. And if you talk about trust in media declining, It's not just that Donald Trump railed against fake news and Republicans lost their trust with the media. That's a big part of it. Trust in media is declining among independents. It's declining among Democrats. And part of this is the fact that reporters individually pop off their opinions on Twitter constantly. And there's a reason that people don't trust them. This is unrelated to the Washington Post conversation, but it is a part of it because reporters need to grapple with their addiction to social media. It is not better than any influencer being addicted to Instagram or TikTok, than any boomer in the Midwest being addicted to Facebook. You need to understand that you are addicted to these things. You need to manage them both for your mental health and the health of the news industry. The end. That best rant to date. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Really? Some of your rants are just useless, but that one, that one was right on the money. The last thing I'll say, I guess, is... um, if you are of the younger generation just coming into the industry, um, Twitter is, is part of the way to work your way up the ladder. And, you know, like you feel like you have to be on it all the time. And that is a different POV from older reporters in the newsroom who don't view it as part of their content DNA. And so there's a, there's a generational clash along with the culture and political ones as well. Mm-hmm. Dylan, thanks so much, man. We appreciate it. Have a good weekend. And uh, I will ask you next week what cocktail you're pouring tonight. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. 
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a minute to hear about what went down at the January 6th hearings last night from our very own Tina Wynn. Thanks, Peter. So we're taping this segment maybe about 10 to 15 minutes after the January 6th committee showed a video outlining the chronology using raw footage from the day of everything that happened between Trump's speech on the ellipse through the breach of the Capitol by the Proud Boys, followed by a mob of Trump supporters. I say this as someone who was at the Capitol on January 6th and left the building about five minutes after the gates were breached. Everything that went on inside that building was 90 times more intense than the events that I recall. Multiple Capitol entries! Multiple Capitol entries! I'm someone who has written about the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, conspiracy theories for ages. Like, I was literally writing about the Oath Keepers months before January 6th happened. I honestly did not think that the January 6th committee was going to be able to draw the line between the rhetoric that Trump was saying and how it incited the mob. And that is the linchpin of this committee. Did Trump's words incite violence? And exactly how did it do it? The way the Republicans have been trying to run interference for Trump has been to say, oh, he just said one thing, and then a whole bunch of MAGA tourists just got overzealous and ran into the Capitol. This video indicates that the January 6th commission has evidence proving otherwise. Not necessarily that the Republican Party and the Trump administration was all gung-ho about getting people to kill Mike Pence, but that Trump had goaded on this extremist movement that was actively there and actively growing to go as far as they did with absolutely no desire to hold them back. I admit that aspect had almost been successfully memory hold for me. And I will be interested in seeing what else the committee has as evidence. And, uh, 
I have a feeling we'll be talking a lot more in the future, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 